Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Charlemagne is one of the most recognizable in Western history, but most people really don't know much about him. His name evokes vague feelings of Christianization, maybe of military conquest, of uh, European importance, maybe even a connection with the Holy Roman Empire. Today, we're going to dig into his story, beginning with how exactly this man found himself in such a pivotal position to begin with. Let's begin. All right, we're here on HI101 with Phil Downey. Hey. Uh, you are continuing to be the uh, most frequent guests on the show. Have we had a three-peat yet? This is our three-peat. Nice. This is the only one. So I'm the two-peat and the three-peat? Yeah. And I mean, we've had other people go to three, uh, go to two. Yes, but, but you're the, the first, first one to three. And the first three, right? Yeah. Man, I'm setting all sorts well, of And the first here. one. Of course. Basically, so... I'm like the honorary host. I'll, but not I'll, try, <laughs> I'll try and I'll try and pencil you in for the four. <laughs> at some point, people are going to get jealous. <laughs> well, well, we'll try and keep things a little bit even, and uh, we'll see how it goes. The worst thing is, I get this honor, and I don't even listen to the podcast that often. <laughs> not to say join that I, the club. I don't say it. I actually really like the podcast, but we were just talking about this before we started recording. I don't have the ability to listen to podcasts in my car, which is the perfect opportunity to listen to podcasts. Yeah, and I mean. To, to be to be very candid with you, it's not uncommon for people to come up to me <laughs> with like, you very apologetically and yeah. be like, you know what, I really like the show, but I'm I'm so behind. Yeah, it's like I'm I actually so I actually evangelize for your show pretty heavily. Like, oh, thanks, man. And I were talking to my friends, I'm like, you like podcasts, right? Yeah, you like history. Yeah, you should totally check out my buddy Adam's podcast. He like tells cool history stories instead of throwing dates and names at you. Yeah, it's it's kind of cool the level that we've started getting to. I mean, with like, I don't advertise or anything like yeah. that but like there are people that i do not know that are listening to the show and it's, yeah. it's kind of a cool thing like I, I got awesome. i got a, a facebook message from someone down in texas that just kind of came across it of course on like texas. The, the, the germany episode which yeah. is what like the third topic or something like yeah. that and has just been listening ever since which was, which was super cool yeah, it's cool how people pick up stuff like this yeah no i i was i was kind of blown away so anyways, we're here to talk about Charlemagne today. Yeah, Charlemagne. Literally like one of the first topics I suggested after Russia. Yeah, it absolutely was. I think it was number one on my list of suggestions. Okay. I think it had a bunch of exclamation marks and maybe all caps. <laughs> <laughs> so do you know much about Charlemagne or was this just like a thing that you want to know more about because it seems like it might be a cool thing? Okay, so full disclosure with my interest in Charlemagne. Mm -hmm. In university, we had to do an essay comparing two things basically in medieval studies okay and i wanted to do beowulf and charlemagne 
but that wasn't allowed because Charlemagne wasn't on like the list of pre-approved topics. Okay. And I wrote it anyways. I'm surprised that Beowulf was approved because yeah, I don't know why. A, a fictional epic. Yeah, <laughs> like the the I have no idea why it was on there, but I think that was actually the mandatory one. I think you had to pick Beowulf and something else. A, a very important piece of literature yeah. and a very interesting one. Like it's it it holds up. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. But um, comparing Beowulf to a historical figure, <laughs> I know, right? It's kind of an odd uh, assignment. The weird thing about it is though that like. First of all, my teacher said, "Yo, you can't do this." I went and talked to my TA, and he said, "If you really want to do this, you can, but you know, don't do this stuff again where you're going off the syllabus here." Yeah, and I was like, "That's fine." Yeah, and I wrote it, and I got a good mark, and I've completely forgotten all of it except this like <laughs> mental image I have of Charlemagne as this like romantic badass. <laughs> That's a really good, very concise description of Charlemagne, <laughs> yeah. where where it's it's almost he's he's so mythical as a as a historical figure that there's so much about the actual details of the man's life even of his accomplishments or even the particulars of you know what he what he did what he accomplished why he was even important that it, it's kind of like people say charlemagne and everyone goes oh yeah charlemagne, charlemagne. <laughs> and 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 everyone kind of nods like they know what's going on <laughs> yeah we're both mm-hmm. nodding right now like, yeah, yeah charlemagne yeah uh, I remember when I first pitched this to you, uh, I think at the first recording session, you said, I can understand why you'd want to do that, because Charlemagne's the kind of guy that would go out in a battlefield, slice a guy in half, and then go write some poetry. Yeah. Well, and I mean, if I said that, I was probably wrong, because Charlemagne <laughs> actually never learned to write. Oh. And it was one of the things that he regretted most in his life, which wow. is kind of interesting. He could read. Interesting. Um, but he started learning how to write like very late in life wow and uh and it just never really took you know there's certain things that yeah you know depending on when in life you learn them it's a lot easier than other times we're also talking about like what 800s yeah yeah late 700s early 800s yeah so that's that's gonna be well i mean he was charlemagne he had a tutor (laughs) of course he had one of the best tutors to to, uh to deal with this but yeah he never really actually learned how to to write so he could read how old did he end up living that's a great question (laughs) we're gonna get there (laughs) no well no that's not the issue it's that we don't know for sure oh great (laughs) about 70 wow that's fairly old it is fairly old Um, for 800 mm -hmm. the 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 problem there is the kind of circling back around to this whole problem of of real mythical people as it were one thing that you sometimes get with these sort of larger than life figures is that people will actually fudge the dates of their births or deaths in order to make them seem more important or auspicious of course um there's you know and i'm trying to remember the details here but i believe it was either his birth or his death was shifted by a couple of years by certain authors to make sure that it lined up with easter of course. You know, things like that yeah. it, it are very common when you're talking about figures like this. Yeah. So I, I think I think 72 is the most likely number from what I've seen, yeah. but that's a pretty soft number. It's, it's, it's kind of difficult to pin down for sure because you have uh, sources that are equally valid or equally believable saying yeah. two completely different things. And when it's a toss-up like that, you kind of just have to go, well, I don't know for sure. It's, it's interesting when you talk about like real life mythological people because the first time I ever heard of Charlemagne I was just like his name is Charlemagne like how do you get more epic sounding of a name than Charlemagne like it looks cool it sounds cool do you know what his real name was like what people would have called him Charles Chuck Carl 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 that sounds much less impressive it was a Germanic name I mean he, he was of, of Germanic origins yeah. and, and, and Carl is the Germanic version of 
Charles. I mean, his name comes in so many forms. Yeah, you know. I remember poking around on Wikipedia and seeing just like all these like also known as. as, as yeah, as uh, Carolus Magnus, yeah. which is Car- uh, Charles the Great in yeah. Latin. Uh, which uh, is exactly what Charlemagne is. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's, which it's, again sounds awesome in yeah, Latin. <laughs> it's it's well, it's actually old French. It's not Latin. Oh, okay. Because by the time he's living, Latin is already differentiating itself into various uh, European languages. Very cool. But we should let, let's let's circle back around because let's one of the biggest problems about Charlemagne for a minute. <laughs> probably the biggest thing about Charlemagne is that he requires a lot of context. I say that so often on this show <laughs> that I feel like I should have like a jingle or like I don't know like some sort Adam's of buzzer. About context. Some sort of buzzer. I don't know. Maybe someone wins a prize. <laughs> <laughs> ding 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 ding! You've required Adam to go on and on about context. But but he really does because I mean this the, the traditional view of of European history from like a very macro level has this big hole in the middle where it's like Rome fell and then. Yeah. Uh, there are several centuries of Europe being gripped by an oppressive Catholic church, I guess. Yep. And then, um, I don't know, something <laughs> about Charlemagne, and then the Crusades <laughs> happen, yeah. and then we discover America, and we can continue with real history. Yeah. Like, it's it's very spotty, and, and I think that's true of most people's understanding of this period in time. I think item number two on my list of suggestions of future topics was the Holy Roman Empire and the fall of Rome and how those two connect as a continuum. Well, good news. We're going to hit both <laughs> with one topic. And I, I remember asking you, you're like, no, no, I'll be covered in Charlemagne. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about, let's talk about the idea of the fall of Rome because that's really where we need to start yeah. in order to understand the importance of Charlemagne. Yep. Let's do it. Traditionally, the fall of Rome is on September 4th, 476. And that is when the last Western Roman Empire, uh, Emperor, uh, his name was Romulus Augustulus. Augustulus? Augustulus. They moved away from just straight up Augustus at that point? I guess it wasn't fancy enough. I mean, Augustus sounds better. <laughs> Who are you to tell Romulus Augustulus which name sounds better? Uh, well, he's dead and I'm not, so suck it. Well, it's it, apparently Odoacer was the one to tell him. Who? A, a Germanic uh, chieftain who okay. deposed Rom- Romulus Augustulus on September 4th, 476. I see. Bringing about the fall of Western Roman Emperor, Empire. And, I mean, obviously something as big and as long-lived as the, the Roman Empire doesn't really fall quite that easily. Of course. But the reason that we use that date as our kind of standard is that when Odoacer installs himself in in place of Romulus Augustulus, he doesn't take the title of emperor. Okay. He takes the title king of Italy. Interesting. Because he just doesn't want to deal with all the other stuff that's going on. A yeah, big empires po- are complicated. They are complicated. And, I mean, we're not talking about the fall of Rome today, but in general... In general terms, what you're looking at for the fall of Rome is is a Germanization of the of the Western Empire. You've got all these tribes kind of coming in from sort of Scandinavia, that area, kind of sweeping through, yeah. getting to the borders of the uh, of the empire and wanting to join because 
things look pretty good in the Empire. They they join the Roman Empire. They're required to Romanize, but they don't necessarily want to give up everything. Yeah. And then on their heels are these other tribes that are completely uninterested in Romanizing in any way, and they start pushing back militarily. And what you've got is a, a Roman military that's Germanized that doesn't really fight as well as the original Italian, you know, entirely Roman yeah. uh, military ever did, but they were forced to adapt to the new realities of a Germanized uh, empire. Yeah. It gets very complicated from there, but the fact is you have the Goths, the the Huns, um, all of these people moving into their their geographical area and and shrinking the Western Roman Empire yeah. very quickly. And I keep saying Western Roman Empire because of course under Constantine, Constantine the Great, the the empire was split into two halves, yes. the, the Western and Eastern Roman Empire, and that's going to be important later. But basically Greece and Rome, right? The Eastern Empire uh, the Eastern Roman Empire didn't fall. It's 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 uh well not not here anyways. Yeah. Um, <laughs> later on. It, later on. It, it, it didn't really fall for a very, very long time. In fact, we're looking at 1384. Wow. I mean, there are arguments to be made either way. But... Of course. Easy to mess around with dates when you're talking about something with such large scope. Mm-hmm. But uh, its headquarters were in Constantinople. Yep. That's where we get the, the term Byzantine Empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, because... The old name for Constantinople is Byzantium. Yes. Um, and yeah, it was it was culturally Greek compared the city to the with so many names. Yeah, absolutely. But it was it was culturally Greek. You're right, and yeah. as as opposed to the culturally uh, Latin uh, Western Empire. And with the fall of the Western Roman Empire, the the Eastern Roman Empire definitely differentiated uh, much more quickly in that direction. Yeah, they screwed up. We're fine. <laughs> well, and and I'm, I mean that's really what they saw the fall of the Western Roman Empire as they yeah. they went okay shoot the western roman empire just went down we are the only roman empire left uh maybe someday we'll get around to reconquering all those lands that used to belong to us yeah uh we're gonna work on that and there were plenty of skirmishes after the fall of the 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 western roman empire trying to get gain back some of that land in fact um the the southern tip of italy was taken over by the byzantine empire there were a number of uh, incursions kind of into what we would call kind of not not quite south germany not quite that far but into like bulgaria and things like that right uh by uh the byzantine empire trying to gain back some of that land so the traditional narrative at this point with the fall of the roman empire is that basically people who had been governing states that were within the empire all of a sudden find themselves as being like the top administrators and right. it, it, it's basically the the best analogy i've ever heard for it is imagine if the federal united states government just ceased existence governors for life yeah and and so all of a sudden the the governor of connecticut is the most important person in connecticut i, I see he's some problems in over. texas <laughs> yeah well and, and i mean that's the thing you get you get states of varying sizes you get uh states of varying uh levels of wealth of military power yeah um it's it's political opinion mm-hmm it's it's a it's a big thing, but to refine that a little bit, let's imagine that really what happens is that there's still uh, Texas is still allied with California, Arizona, New Mexico, and a number you know a number of those those states, and they're still in one sense of thinking about it a remnant of that federal government, but the rest of the country has fallen apart, and they think of it as though the federal government is gone forever, when in reality they've just changed forms into this southwestern focused government right right so but but in in any case you're looking at these these smaller states that these um uh these former roman states that are kind of governing themselves and the traditional 
narrative is kind of like, well, and then they kind of sorted themselves out into France and Germany and Italy and these things, and, and it's kind of glossed over for the most part. It's unfortunate that that part gets glossed over because like, that seems really cool to see these like countries that we now recognize literally coming out of the, the remains of this empire, mm-hmm. and we're not really sure how they all amalgamated, but they did. And that's really interesting. I can tell you exactly how they amalgamated. Excellent. It's very, very easy. We have 476 as the end date for the uh, the Roman Empire, Western Roman Empire. By 481, there was this this Germanic chief named Clovis. Okay. And he his his tribe was called the Franks. And yeah, I wonder where this is going. In, in between 480, uh, 481 and 509, he spent all of that time consolidating the Franks. There were there, there were numerous Frankish tribes, right? Basically, he set himself up as king of all Franks. He was a he was a, a Salian Frank originally. Doesn't really matter. It's a tiny regional distinction. It's it's worth noting that just because you are a Goth doesn't necessarily mean that you are friendly with all other Goths. Right. It's more of a kind of umbrella term, a general term. Sort of like the Wildlings in Game of Thrones. How they all hate each other, but they're still wildlings. Sure, yeah, that works. I mean, I think I, I was thinking kind of a, a more real world version of this is when people talk about Native Americans, yeah, as though they're an entire like monolithic sort of like, body. Yeah, when in reality, there are yeah, th- there are nations within them that have yeah. very different traditions. They have uh, different languages, different histories, different uh, opinions, uh, different political systems. Like, they're completely different, but yeah. you can't really think about them as a, an entire body and yet it's just kind of easier to do that yeah. especially if you're not part of that system and so people have for a very long time which is unfortunate and not accurate but I feel like it's you easier. probably lose a lot of the subtleties of their interactions and their histories by doing that too absolutely and and that's especially what you get when you talk about all of these people as Germanic tribes yeah. Germanic tribes it's is even this big <laughs> umbrella term yeah. of all of these people who have kind of come out of I don't know, northeast somewhere? <laughs> because they're all barbarians to the Romans, right? Like, they don't yeah. care where they're coming from. They just know that they're, they're showing up on their doorstep and wanting in. And they don't really want them in, but they let them in because they have to to deal with other problems. You know, so Germans just showing up. So Clovis consolidates the Franks. And he spends the last two years of his life, uh, between 509 and 511, just expanding across Europe. He was originally in this little area... Uh, more or less where Belgium is now. Okay. Sort of on the, the, the north coast of, of Europe. Yeah, in around there. Uh, where Basically where the Rhine meets the, the North Sea. He basically managed to take from there the vast majority of France, of what we would know as France today, down to the Pyrenees Mountains. It's a huge swath of land. And when he took all of this land, he... he there, there was this thing that was going on at this point in time where because they were sort of more of a, a tribal setup socially, basically what the leader did, everybody else did in the tribe um, in terms of politics and especially in terms of religion and in terms of just sort of social uh, experience. So what he managed to do when he took this entire swath of land is he, he made them all Frankish. I gotcha. So he came upon a tribe that is not Frankish. Uh, they have an option. Become Franks, or <laughs> we attack you. Yeah, or the other thing. And he attacked a lot of them, and a lot of them decided to be rolled into the, the Frankish nation. And it's a pretty effective way of, of doing things. I mean, it wasn't new at that point in time. That was a very Julius Caesar move. Yeah. But 
he he managed to make a lot of people Frankish that weren't necessarily Frankish until he kind of came along and rolled right through. Another very important thing about Clovis was his wife, uh, Clotilda, who was Catholic. Now, at this point in time, you have a few things going on. First of all, most of these Germanic tribes, a lot of these Germanic tribes, I should say, are still what we would consider pagan now. So they have a vast majority of gods that they're uh, worshiping, and they kind of switch back and forth between them as is convenient. Yep. The other thing you have going on is something called Arianism. And Arianism is considered a heresy by the Catholic Church. Without getting too in-depth with it, basically what the Arians would say, and this is Arian, A-R-I-A-N, named after Arius, the founder of this school of thought, the, 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 the standard Catholic doctrine is that Jesus is... Uh, has always existed and will always exist because he's only an aspect of he, he is an aspect of God and as such must be like on the same level as God the Father. Okay. The Arians stated that because they they had bible verses basically to back up and in their opinion that Jesus had at some point by necessity been created by God the Father and therefore was not on the same level. Right. As as God. A lesser deity. And so, yeah, while while still important and while still divine and, and all of this, uh, was not part of the Trinity as, as uh, Catholics would understand it. Gotcha. So extremely heretical as far as the Catholic Church is considered. Yeah, that's pretty dangerous stuff to be saying. Very popular with Germanic tribes. Extremely popular. A lot of them found this to be a little bit more sensible. And at the risk of generalizing in exactly the way that I was <laughs> condemning, just like not five minutes ago, Germanic tribes tended to have a slightly less nuanced understanding of theology. So it wasn't that hard to get them to follow one version or another of Christianity because they really didn't see that much of a difference. And when Arians would go and proselytize to Germanic tribes, they would go like, yeah, that makes sense to me. And they wouldn't necessarily see any real difference between that and uh, Orthodox Catholicism. Yeah. Clotilda was Catholic, and while uh, Clovis was not, at least initially, she she badgered him to to convert, and and the the story is is actually fantastic. She would basically go around being like Clovis, your gods are dumb. <laughs> <laughs> like Jupiter can't keep it in his pants. Like why are you why are you worshiping that guy? Like check out check out Jesus over here. He knows what's what. And, and Clovis would be like, get out of here. I don't want any of this nonsense. Then um, Clotilda baptized their first son and without Clovis knowing. Of course. And the child became sick and died. It was a son. And, and Clo- Clovis goes, well, it's because you baptized him. And she goes, yeah. uh, no, it's because you haven't converted yet. Uh-oh. And so like they had all these arguments <laughs> yeah. trying to get him to convert. But finally, there was this big battle and uh, the, the story goes that Clovis prayed to Mars for victory, and it wasn't working. The battle was turning against him, so he went, eh, why not? I'll try Jesus. <laughs> and so he prayed to... He's got, like, a list of deities. Mars, nope. Jesus, all right, you're up, buddy. But it was a very functional type of polytheism that way, where, yeah. you know, if one god wasn't doing it for you, well, try the other ones. I guess they're worthy of your of your prayers this day. Well, even... I think I have a, a friend of mine who was talking about like the difference between the different um, Greek gods, mm-hmm. and they were saying that once praying to Ares stopped working, they'd try Athena. 
Sure. And all of a sudden, their battles would be start working better. So now Athena took on more of these warrior-like traits over time. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's that's kind of the, if you want to call it, one of the benefits of polytheism <laughs> is that you get to you get to kind of shop around until one works <laughs> out for you, right? Yep. And a lot of these German chieftains saw Jesus as just one more yeah. option. For Another them, name on the list, right? And and you kind of run run down. But when he got to to Jesus and he prayed to Jesus and the battle turned in his favor he kind of went like okay fine i guess i'll convert and he did along with three thousand of his soldiers on the spot because this this is that top down yeah uh social you uh, do grouping. what i do yeah because he's converting to catholicism largely because of clotilda yep everybody else that is frankish is converting to catholicism so clovis like basically single-handedly results in the the victory of orthodox uh catholicism over Arianism at this point in time. Wow. While also uniting a good swath of Europe under the Frankish banner and thereby basically creating uh, a common identity for the vast majority of Western Europe as Frankish. And I mean, the, the word France comes from the word Frank. Yeah. And uh, I'd hoped we'd picked up on that by now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, it, it needs to be said though. For sure. But I mean, he, his, his, his empire at his death included most of modern France, some of northern Germany, all of Belgium, like a, a, an enormous swath of land. So is there, um, is this like the biggest power base for Catholicism at this point? Like, is there any other like area where it's thriving quite so much? Well, it's thriving all over the place because really in, in a lot of cases, when that sort of uh, imperial government system falls apart, the place or the, the the structure that picks up most of that slack is the church so maybe not necessarily on a political level but who do you think take care takes care of health care or education or social security that's all done by the 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 charity of the church who has who has a very well who has a good network for it of course right They're which set is up for it right and and set up through the through the infrastructure of the roman uh, system. Yeah, I mean, they hadn't put it into put it into place themselves. They were piggybacking on what had already been put in by the the empire. But when it fell apart, they took advantage of that system, and they were still centrally organized using the Pope in Rome, because the the papacy was an imperial position. I mean, it, it was you know ever since Catholicism was made the state religion of the Roman Empire, that was an that was an imperial position. And it's important to kind of remember that. It's it's just that it was the only imperial position that didn't completely crumble with the fall of Rome. Right. Which is very, very interesting. But yeah, I mean, they, they get a really bad rap for some of the stuff that goes on in, oh, quote, unquote, the Dark Ages, which is, <laughs> by the way, please never use that term. It's such a bad term for all the things that, the very interesting and progressive things that happen in this time. But, you know, there are a lot of things that would have disappeared forever if it wasn't for the preservation by the church. So is there a reason why the the position of the pope didn't kind of fall apart? Well, when, it's like, it's 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 got a religious tradition behind it as well as a political tradition. So they right? just kind of felt like they were separate enough from yeah. the pol- the politics that they said we'll still will be able to survive this. Exactly. I mean, the the pontiff is actually a position that predates Christianity, which is really interesting. P- pontiff means bridge builder. 
and it's a it's a religious position um, and it's a largely ceremonial one. It doesn't have a lot of political power, but it was one that was seen as a stepping stone to political power within Rome. So, I mean, uh, Julius Caesar was a pontiff at one point in his life. Interesting. Yeah. And and I mean, it's it obviously evolved a lot as, as Christianity was founded and then grew and, and, and grew in acceptance. But it, it has its roots in the Roman Empire to a, a great degree. So it's it's always important to remember that, that really originally there was the pontiff and then there was the bishop of Rome, which was kind of a one bishop among many. And then as it was made the state religion, those two positions were combined uh, to make the papacy. That's super interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I talk more about church history on this show than, <laughs> than probably a lot of people would like, just because I find it really interesting. Just it, it gets very intricate and very uh, uh, detailed. And, well, and... I mean, we learn about how things operate now, but the history of it isn't really taught to us in the same way. No. So, like, I learned very little of this in my medieval studies class in university, but this is all news to me. Like, I, I've never heard this stuff before. So it's fascinating to see, like, the history of the stuff I was exposed to growing up. Sure. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I think that the, a lot of the stuff people are worried about offending sensibilities or something like that when I, I don't think it necessarily is a is a good or bad thing or should have anyone or should have any effect on anyone's uh, current beliefs or anything like that. It's just that I, I think that like anything else, it's important to know where all of this stuff comes from. Now, yeah, the I, history of it is just super fascinating to see how these structures formed and survived like millennia at this point sure i mean the the papacy other than the um well i I mean in the world today the papacy is one of the oldest uh continuous dynasties that exists it's it's super like it's just incredibly fascinating to see like that something so old is still a very powerful position i think the only thing that's older at this point is the and and I'm, i'm probably wrong on this i could be wrong but the only thing i can think of is the um uh, the Japanese emperor. Wow. Which is, and today is a, an entirely ceremonial position. Yeah. Has zero power whatsoever whatsoever other than um, uh, symbolic. Yeah. Not that that isn't important or anything like of that. Of course but, not, uh, but like the Pope actually, like the, the, the papacy actually wields some significant... They can throw power. their weight around a little yeah. bit. They have some things they can say. Yeah, more than a little. Yeah, absolutely. So as big as Clovis's empire was, I saw... I saw one quote somewhere that basically said taking a bunch of little tiny areas and cobbling them together into a kingdom was really easy at this point in time. Keeping them together after your death was nearly impossible. (laughs) This again, eh? And part of it is, yeah. well, I I mean, it's a common theme throughout history, really. Yeah, absolutely. to, To build a lasting legacy is the reason that some of these notable people are so notable. I mean, even someone as charismatic and as influential as alexander the great i mean when he died everything that he built crumbled right like there were you know he founded so many cities he conquered so much land and it was all just divided up between his generals when he died yeah the issue of of legacy is just really hard to grapple with absolutely and clovis was no different and and one of the reasons is that clovis was a very effective leader but the other is that the way Traditionally, inheritance is dealt with in Germanic tribes in general, but specifically within the Franks, is that when you die, everything that you have is divided up among your sons. So we're not looking at primogeniture. We're not looking at giving everything to the firstborn son, right? Because that's a concept that's going to come along a lot later to try and keep legacies 
uh, intact, specifically because of what's happening with these tribes. Because when when Clovis dies, the first thing that happens is he chops up the kingdom between his four sons. Yeah, and that's not going to end poorly, right? Well, I mean, it depends on who you ask. <laughs> I, it it doesn't go particularly well for his line. His his uh, his dynasty is called the the Merovingians. Um, yes. I knew this name was going to come up soon. Uh, it's it's based on a uh, a guy that he claimed was his grandfather that may or may not be a completely mythical figure in history. Anyways, it's it's not really that important to our to our discussion. Um, Dan Brown talks about it a lot. That's about as important as it gets. It's it's not the name of that guy in those Matrix sequels that didn't exist. Oh yeah, that's right. I forgot about that dude. Now I'm sad. Um, it's okay. It never happened. <laughs> The Merovingian line after Clovis, and and here again we kind of run into the issue of heredity and it being tied to political power, which is that it's a complete dice roll. Yeah, like maybe one of your sons is competent, hopefully. I've also seen it described as Russian roulette, which I, I think maybe is a little bit extreme, but the fact of the matter is that you're just hoping that your kid is as competent as you are and, and that your grandchildren are as competent as you are. And you're, at some point, it's not going to work out. Yeah, well, I mean, this is why... I would assume this is part of why democracy is a more attractive solution when it comes along, is that you're actually trying to pick someone based on their merits. Yeah, it, the idea is that it's a, a slightly more merit-based system and you don't have to deal with the dice roll of how fit to rule somebody is like we're even talking about splitting splitting your empire or whatever it is among all of your children but if you if you just give that to the firstborn children you're just basically doubling down you're like i really hope this first guy really knows what they're doing yeah but can you imagine if like three of the kids were really competent (laughs) and you're living in the country you're living in the country (laughs) you're living in the country where the guy is just completely daft and you're like man why couldn't i've been with the other guy uh, well, that's when you get assassinations going down. Yeah, no, it's it's a complicated uh, system of dealing with with inheritance, and it's not. It's actually really bizarre to think that, like, from what from a, the standpoint of what's best for the country, assassinating your leader might actually be the best thing you could do. Yeah, but you're still not going to be hailed as a hero. <laughs> no, of course not. Time. Like, you're totally throwing yourself under the bus for your country at that point. But the situation you're talking about, right? Like, say, like the the guy who's next in line is actually like particularly could be good at being the leader and the guy that you got as an apt. I, I can't excuse it, but I understand the, the motivation to try and change it. Well, and, and you know, as, as stable as the, the political situation has been, you know, for, for you and I, for our entire lives and, and for, yeah, you know, for the majority of the, the uh, developed world, it's hard to understand that idea, but there's a reason that, you know, for example, in the United States Constitution, that revolution is framed as like a uh, one of the inalienable rights of the people is that it's like, uh, basically they were saying sometimes it is for the good of the country to, yeah. um, because, because the political situation is such that you don't have a different means of, of uh, affecting real change. So... Anyway, we're way off topic here, but it, it, it's absolutely true that sometimes when you don't have a voice in who who rules, and there have been situations like that many times in history, that sometimes people look outside of the traditional political means to um, try and improve their lot in life. So anyways, that was an interesting little sidebar. But <laughs> as cool as Clovis was, a lot of his kids just were not 
the Merovingians did not do a good job. In fact, they were known a little bit later on as the do-nothing kings. Oh, good. Like the entire line. How, um, how many generations are we talking here? We're looking at about 200 years. Wow. Not quite. 200 years of doing nothing. Good job, guys. What they ended up doing was employing what they called mayors. Now, that comes from the word major damas. Mayor, remember no J in, in Latin, right? So, yep. mayor damas. That's, the word, that's where the word mayor comes from. So, major, cool. major lord, basically, is what it means. Their mayors basically did all of the day-to-day administration. So, any of the actual ruling, they did it on their behalf. So, while the king was just putzing about doing whatever he felt like doing because he was king being useless in this case probably you know like a lot of hunting and and just sort of kingly whatever's yeah hanging out feasts kingly feasts, i guess sure falconry feasting uh, the, the slang slang things mm-hmm. these mayors would do all of the work initially it was kind of like well i need somebody to look after things while i'm not around or like if i can't look after them this is my right hand man but increasingly it was like they completely relied on the mayors to do everything and it got to a point where they were just doing nothing at all the mayors were doing everything for them and there ended up being this big power struggle between the mayors and the kings interesting because basically they went and and probably a good uh, analogy for this one would be the um the stewards of gondor in in uh in Lord of the Rings, right? right? Where they're not actually the line of the kings, but they're looking after everything for the kings in their absence. Or like Jafar in Aladdin. Perfect. So that works too. <laughs> we can make examples all day. <laughs> or to go back to Game of Thrones, the hand of the king. Perfect. Nailed it. We got it. We got it. Did it in one. In three, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, so there was this big there was this big, big power struggle and this line called the, uh, the Carolingians, who are named after their first... Well, the person who basically first wrested power from the Merovingians, whose name was uh, Charles Martel, which means uh, Charles the Hammer. Okay, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> basically, he he fought this really important battle against these uh, these um, Slavs from the east and and protected the air the, the the realm, and he never really did anything further to to try and put himself in the place of the kings, but he was absolutely in charge. And for some time during Charles Martel's reign, there wasn't actually a Merovingian king on the throne. And they ended up putting one kind of back in place. But his son, um, Pepin the Short, they all, they all have really like unflattering descriptions in their names. Pepin the Short. Pepin the Short. Pepin doesn't even, as a name doesn't even inspire much confidence. I also adding see the, it as Pippin sometimes. Yeah, adding the short on there, it's just really not not selling me on this guy's later on there's confidence. a pep in the bald which is great not great either <laughs> pep in the short bald and unsightly there's there's a lot of really unflattering cognomens that are added to these guys names but very descriptive so in 749 uh pep in the short goes to the pope pope zachary and basically says listen i need you to make a decision because here's the deal you're basically the only person that can veto a king right now uh Here's my question for you. Is a king a king if he does not rule? Good question. It's a very good question. And it's very much to the point, right? Like it's it's very obviously obviously there's obviously there's an answer that he wants, but, yeah, but it's, like, it's phrased in a way that is basically impossible to give the opposite answer. Yeah, and what like he's it's, dealing it's, with it's a philosophical question that actually is fairly representative of the problem they're looking at right now, where the kings are useless. Exactly, exactly. And and 
really, he has to find a way. If he wants to rule, he has to find a way around the Merovingian dynasty, which stretches back to Clovis and has like a very definitive history, right, of, of, of legitimacy. Because remember, Clovis was king starting within five years of the fall of the Roman Empire. There's no there's no gap there. Yeah. There is a there's a heritage that yeah, he has to overcome. There's consistency. Yeah. Later that year, um, Zachary comes back with a decision and he rules that Pepin should be considered the true king because he is acting in a kingly way. Basically answering his question. Yes. And 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 saying, yeah, no, I'm I'm gonna make you king. So what did the Merovingians think of that? Well, the last Merovingian basically got put in an abbey. <laughs> just go over there. This is going to be we're a common theme. We're going we're gonna to see this a few times, actually. They just get put in abbeys. The idea being that once somebody takes holy orders, they can't really undo that and come yeah. back and be king. Yeah. There are other eras in history where that's absolutely a thing you could do, is just kind of rescind. But not in the 8th century. Yeah. That's just not how it works. So... In 753, Pope Stephen, who needed some help with some local issues, kind of reconfirmed Pepin's royalty. Uh, but at that time, he also confirmed the royalty of Pepin's children. Uh-huh. So setting it up as a hereditary dynasty. <laughs> dynasty number two. Yeah. Well, probably uh, more than two at this point. Yeah, and he had needed some help with defense from uh, another group of people called the Lombards. We'll, we'll get into them as well. But they're another uh, Germanic-based tribe. And no, we keep talking about these people and I'm always worried that like it's giving this issue, there this idea of uh, basically barbarian hordes with like long unkempt <laughs> hair and beards wearing maybe skins. I don't know. Maybe they got like a club or something. You know, like it, it maybe just, like a spear that's like got like some cloth connecting the the, the blade to the shaft. Yeah, and it, it sounds very unrefined. Yes. And when you hear the the, the Romans talk about them centuries before. They all they were already talking about them as being unrefined, but the reality of it is that they weren't really that sort of person for like centuries at this point in time. They were fairly, uh, as much as this is a loaded word, they were fairly civilized people. Yeah, you know, like they had culture, they had literacy, they had. So were they were they raiding parties, or were there other people in Europe who were basically just pushing up against the Frankish border? The Lombards. Yeah, yeah, they were they were another nation within within Europe. Essentially they would be positioned in like the north of Italy. Yep. Like down to just below the Alps and kind of spilling out more than than Italy does into Europe. So a bunch of the south of France and some of the like southern Germany kind of thing. So they were a fairly sizable I mean nothing compared to the Franks at this point in time, um, but they were a fairly sizable uh, group And now I think I forgot to mention, which is unfortunate, but Charles Martel had uh, basically managed to reunite the Franks. So even though the Frankish Empire after Clovis had been kind of chopped up and chopped up over and over over the, the course of several centuries, they kind of managed to kind of bring things back around. There had been a king of the Franks this whole time. Yeah. But his actual ruling area had been getting smaller and smaller this entire time. Uh, Charles Martel managed to unify all of these Frankish kingdoms into a bit more of a monolith again. And that's what uh, Pepin was working with when he was confirmed king. So Pope Stephen basically traded legitimacy for help against the Lombards. It was a very like practical arrangement, but the reality of what he did was create the Carolingian dynasty. And that was a lot of context. But I think it's really important to understand what's going to happen with Charlemagne. 
because as I said earlier, that, that whole gap between the Roman Empire and the Holy Roman Empire is something that doesn't get talked about a lot, and it's not really that complicated. Yeah, that was pretty easy. There, there was a guy who took over part of the, the Frankish area. He had, had some kids. They sucked. Some other guy took over. His kids set up a new dynasty. It's not that hard. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not even that boring. It's actually pretty fascinating. <laughs> There's no reason it needs to be yeah. skipped, and yet it always is. Yeah, and it's, I don't know, knowing the continuity of these things is always way more fascinating than just jumping in at a point. Well, and it's important for the story as well because exactly what we're going to be trying to determine with Charlemagne is what is the continuity from the Holy Roman, or from the original Western Roman Empire because you can't be Roman Emperor without understanding that context. Yeah. So, with all that context out of the way... I guess we can play the outro jingle on that context. <laughs> I think we're finally ready to talk about Charlemagne, but uh, first, how about we take a little break and we'll come right back to that. Sounds good. Okay, we're back on HI101 here with Phil Downey. Hey, hey. And before the break, we talked about everything except Charlemagne. <laughs> Merovingians, Carolingians. Sure. Romans, right. all sorts of stuff. Lombards. Franks. Mm-hmm. Except that's not quite true. Remember I mentioned that Pope Stephen II confirmed not only Pepin the Short's nobility, but also his two sons. Yes. That would be Charlemagne and his brother Carolman. Ah. Hmm. So, that declaration had a pretty big impact on his life, I would say. No kidding. And that means when Pepin died in 768, Charlemagne became king of the franks actually co-king of the franks with carolman because they shared the inheritance right like that's the a co-king has that happened before in history well yeah absolutely i mean it's more it, it was an issue of rather than splitting the kingdom between the two of them they had joint rule over the kingdom that was the decision that the pepin made yep which turned out to be a very strong eh, it has its pros and cons as we'll see as we get into it a little bit more the biggest pro though being that Charles Martel and then Pepin after him put together a very big kingdom and not splitting that up on his death gave both Charlemagne and Carolman a fairly big advantage just kind of starting out. Yeah, they just got this giant kingdom. Yeah, it's huge. Now, Charlemagne didn't really get along with Carolman all that well. Okay. They tended to butt heads quite a bit. It's one of those things that like when you're just talking about like your brother or whatever it's pretty normal to not like well, like get for, along on everything first of all i was like yeah they're brothers whatever we've both got brothers we know how it goes but also you're sharing a kingdom with this brother you're literally co-kings yeah and some of those things that you can kind of get away with when you're just messing around with your kid brother doesn't work out as well when you're trying to be kings together yeah managing a kingdom it's no big deal let's just uh, hug it out yeah so there was already some rebellion that the that Pepin had been dealing with when uh, when he died, and when he died, that responsibility got transferred onto the two brothers, and there was some kind of disagreement about how to proceed, and like the, it, it, it was one of those things that it started out as butting heads, and it nearly got to a civil war at one point. You know, it, it gets it's it's one of those things that. I read a whole bunch about it and it got really complicated, so I'm trying to like cut through it as quickly as possible. <laughs> What's the short, condensed version of this? Uh, Charlemagne married uh, a Lombard. Okay. I don't know how to pronounce her name, which is becoming more and more of a theme on this show, by the way, and I don't like it. <laughs> but 
a lot of these things, I'm not sure how to look up the pronunciations and, and be confident in them, so I just wing them. Give it your best shot. Uh, Desiderata? Sure. That's sure. possible. Maybe. I, I don't even know. Like, I mean, they're speaking like an old version of French at this point, but yeah, with like, like really heavy German influences, but also really ha- heavy Latin influences. I don't know how to pronounce old French. Yeah, and they're going to sound nothing like modern French or Italian. And I'm not that German. good at modern French anyway. Yeah, it's just not going to sound like anything that we know now. So, I, I mean, I'm sure there was a place that I could have found that. I didn't stumble across it while I was doing research and I didn't have time to look it up specifically. So that's how things go sometimes. He married this... Uh, this Lombard, Desiderata, who happened to be the daughter of the king of the Lombards. So it was very much like a political marriage, right? Yeah. And, you know, Caramon felt like maybe this was a little bit too much power for Charlemagne because he was looking at this as being a potentially, you know, political move, tying the two dynasties together. Yeah, a little too blatant. A little too blatant. He tried to get the Pope involved in getting their marriage annulled. Wow. Things got really sloppy. Douchey. Yeah, it was just... <sighs> It was really messy. It turns out that Charlemagne didn't even really like Desiderata all that much anyways. <laughs> and he ended up getting the marriage annulled himself later on. Okay. Which was going to cause more problems down the line. Now, this could have gotten really, really bad, except that Carolman died in 771 of natural causes. So three years after they got the joint kingship. How much older was Carolman? He was younger, actually. Now, it's, it's a really convenient thing for Charlemagne. And it's a really suspicious thing, but there's absolutely no reason to uh, suspect any sort of foul play whatsoever. Interesting. Uh, as far as we can tell, he died of a really bad nosebleed. Which that was a thing happened then, apparently. Well, I mean, it's 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 one of those things that it's hard to say whether it was just a nosebleed or whether the nosebleed was a symptom of something going on that was much worse. I mean, if the if the guy had an aneurysm of some sort, yeah. You know, it, it can manifest with, with symptoms that look like that. And what are you going to do for, a, for an aneurysm in 768? But still, imagine the other situation where, you know, he just had an itchy nose, did a little digging, nicked himself, <laughs> and then died. <laughs> that is a shitty way to go. I mean, they, you know, they were bad at medicine. I don't think they were that bad. <laughs> you have to cut yourself pretty bad to bleed out that way. He's picking his nose with a sword. <laughs> Like, what are you doing, buddy? Oh, man. So, anyways, Carolman's out of the picture very early on. And that leaves uh, Charlemagne as, like, sole emperor, or sole king, sorry, not emperor yet, sole king of the Franks and the entire Frankish territory, which is massive. Yeah, definitely. And, unfortunately, out of this whole mess where he, you know, annuls his marriage with Desiderata, this does not really help his relationship with the Lombards. Yeah. Make things a little bit more complicated. Um, so the king of the Long- Lombards, her father, his previous father-in-law, Desiderius, basically... So Pepin the Short had obviously been very close with the, the papacy, right? Because Stephen gave him this acknowledgement as uh, being nobility. Yep. So Charlemagne was similarly close with the, with the papacy. One of the terms that Pepin the Short had given, the, given to Pope Stephen was basically guaranteeing him uh, an area of land around Rome as a fiefdom that was under direct papal control. Now, this is the kind of thing that in in several centuries is going to turn into the papal states when Italy is sort of a wild west of city-states and and kind of weird contested territories and things like that. But that's kind of the root of the, the political kind of secular power that the papacy would have for many centuries. Desiderius decided that 
even though he had promised the Pope that he was going to give him Ravenna, which was the former capital of the Western Roman Empire. And that's the thing that a lot of people don't know, actually. The, the Roman Empire didn't keep Rome for the, as the capital for the entirety of its duration. Uh, it actually moved north to a city called Ravenna because Rome itself wasn't really built to be a big city. And it quickly, the, the Roman Empire quickly outgrew Rome as a capital. I mean, it's, if you've got a, a, an empire that essentially runs around the Mediterranean, Taking a detour down the peninsula of Italy not to get exactly to the capital, ideal. it's not really well placed yeah. for trade, for political reasons, for military reasons. It's just not good. So they moved it to a city called Ravenna, and Desiderius, and, and this was now in Lombard territory. Desiderius promised to give uh, Ravenna to the to the um, the Pope. We've actually got a new Pope now, Pope Adrian the First, or Hadrian, depending on the the source they're the same name basically is this the hadrian with the wall or is that a different thing entirely that was a roman emperor uh several centuries before that dang yep but i mean named after him or the same name at the very least sure hadrian takes the the papacy in 772 goes hey desiderius you said that you were going to give us this territory and desiderius reacts really strangely in that not only does he deny him but he decides to start making his way towards rome with him with a military so hadrian sends envoys to charlemagne and says hey a little help and charlemagne decides you know what i really did want that lombard territory and now the marriage route isn't exactly an option the papacy has always been really good to my family I am a devout Catholic, and I really do like going to war. So <laughs> it's great, and that's that's the thing about Charlemagne. I mean, I, you know, a lot of people want to portray him as this sort of um, uh, enlightened scholar, and to some extent, he was like that was a big portion of his identity. Yeah, he loved fighting, and Did I don't really think, equate the two. And I don't think it's fair to only single out the sort of Renaissance king type picture of his life. When, in reality, he spent his entire reign fighting battles. Well, that's, like I said before, like that's like the most interesting part about him, is that he had that scholarly aspect, but also knew how to bust skulls when he needed to. And boy, did he. He was a big guy. We're, we're not sure exactly of his height, but he was somewhere between 6'6 six and 6'3. Six wow. And this is in an era where... Yeah, that's tall for the time. The average man was somewhere around 5'6 or 5'7. Yeah. It's basically a giant. He was huge, and, and I mean, that gives you a huge advantage in battle. Like, that's not to be, as well as a very commanding presence. Yeah. And his yeah. father was named Pepin the Short. Hey, look, way <laughs> up there, it's Charlemagne. And, and apparently, like, fairly athletic as well. I mean, and, like, people noted how good his hair looked. He had flowing <laughs> hair. No, and as he got older, it was white, but it was still very thick and, like, very long. And, so and, basically, he's just some handsome, like scholarly warlord yeah there was there was very little bad to say about the guy apparently he had a rather large nose oh, that was that oh was darn. all people could come up with i bet that was propaganda no to be fair uh there were contemporary portraits that showed him as having a rather large nose okay uh it fit with his features it did not detract from his look at all <laughs> so it's not even a bad thing it's just objectively he's got a large nose yeah but it looks great it <laughs> So, so that's Charlemagne's nose. Uh, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> now let's do another ten minutes on this. This whole thing turned into like a big thing. Like it wasn't just a quick one and done. Jump in there, save the Pope, head back to 
Frankish territory. <laughs> this ended up being a multiple year campaign in Lombard territory uh, between 772 and 774. And he basically went down, intercepted this army of Desiderius's that was going towards Rome, defeated them in battle. Desiderius turns around, heads back to the Lombard capital. Uh, it's a city called Pavia, hunkers down in there, and Charlemagne besieges the city. <laughs> nope, this is mine too. Now, Desiderius' son, uh, Adelchus, actually sneaks out of the city and heads to Constantinople. And that's a really important part of the story, is you have to remember that the Byzantine Empire is going strong right now. It's a, it's a major political player. And it saw kind of all of this stuff going on in Italy and in the German states as kind of being... They, 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 call, or they talked about the German states as being uh, sons of Byzantium or sons of, of the Roman Empire in sort of a very belittling way. <laughs> um, as though, you know, someday maybe they'll come back and join the, the real enlightened Roman Empire. But for now, they kind of have some things to work out. Yeah. Roman Empire light. Absolutely. And, and absolutely, they saw themselves as above them. No question about it. But at this point, it's actually starting to kind of come onto their doorstep because, as I, I uh, mentioned in the last portion, the Byzantine Empire had territory in the south of Rome. So all of a sudden, there's these, there's this major military action, not really that far from Byzantine territory. So he goes to Constantinople, hoping to ask the emperor. It was uh, Constantine V at this point in time uh, for some help. But before he even really manages to get help brought back. Constantine's involved in some other battles on on other borders. Remember, the Eastern Roman Empire was massive, much bigger than the than the Western Roman Empire ever was, and he doesn't have the troops to spare right away. And before he can do anything about it, Charlemagne manages to break the siege. So Desiderius surrenders and is also put in a monastery. <laughs> and basically, his son Adelchus stayed in Constantinople. He never came home because there was nothing there for him. Yeah. And here's what makes Charlemagne a little bit different than other rulers at this point in time. Normally you win the war and then you go home. Charlemagne went, you know what? I'm going to be king of Lombard as well. Ah. And he took the Iron Crown of Lombard and he said, yep, I am king of this too. Now, were they separate entities that he was both king of both of these things or did he unite them? Initially it was a separate thing, but he decided to take... Lombard and make it Frankish. He decided to assimilate the people living there. Now the Franks and the Lombards weren't particularly far apart, culturally speaking. I'm sure if you were to ask either one or the other at that point in time how different they were and they would tell you very, very. But in reality, it wasn't much of a process to take Lombardy and um, convert those people to Frankish culture, to Frankish politics, all of that stuff. And we haven't really quite left this era of top-down assimilation. So it's really not that hard to sort of install yourself as king of the Lombards and make significant social changes. And that's exactly what he does. So just like that, he basically takes a giant chunk of territory that wasn't his before and just adds it to his empire. Now, it's worth noting that the vast majority of, of Charlemagne's empire was just handed to him by his father. It was already in place. It had been taken by Clovis and then by Charles Martel and then by Pepin long before 
Charlemagne ever had a crack at it. Yeah, he was just managing to capitalize on what he was already working with. Exactly. He managed to leverage all of this territory and all the people that lived there and um, affect cultural change in other areas. But it certainly wasn't a new idea for him. He was building on what he had been... It was, it was, his, it was in his blood. It was his heritage to, uh, to conquer people in this manner. Not to say that it was inevitable in any way, but he wasn't doing anything that new. So anyways, he, 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 gets, uh, he gets in there. He gets Lombardy. That's his now. While he's there, he visits Pope Adrian in Rome. And while he's there, Adrian, again, the third pope in a row, confirms the nobility of Charlemagne. And I know that sounds a little bit insecure or repetitive or unnecessary. Yeah. It but, does. I was just like, really, do we have to go through this again? Well, there's a couple of things that are, that are at play here. Number one, they did straight up steal a kingdom from another dynasty. Yes. And not in like, not in a very legitimate way. Yeah, just like, I decided I wanted this, so it's mine now. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they were certainly acting in a ruling capacity, but they didn't have any heredity, hereditary claim on that throne. Yeah. Not, they weren't even like a distant cousin or something like that that they could make a case for it basically squatters rights they were they, yeah exactly they were handed it by uh they had it handed to them by the pope and so yeah it helps to have successive popes confirm that because if one pope can give it to you another pope can take it away right and so it's important to confirm that yes they are noble they do deserve this kingdom the other thing is that there's an interesting political thing going on here with the the papacy which is that by confirming the nobility of Charlemagne, they're basically establishing their ability to confirm or deny someone's nobility. I was just going to ask, what happens if they deny it? That isn't really a scenario that plays out, so it's definitely a hypothetical. But uh, nobody's willing to I risk think... it, basically, so they play ball with what the well, there's no, wants. Well, there's no need, really. Yeah. It, it never, there, there was never a point in time where they needed to do that. Yeah. But they still feared it because they were asking for it. Yeah, but they made sure that it didn't ever happen to them, is, yeah. is, is I guess what I'm trying to say. Um, they made sure that it, even though it was a hypothetical possibility, they made sure that in practicality it never came about. So I think really what would have happened if uh, a pope had denied their nobility is that they would have continued as king of the Franks, but losing the backing of the entire Catholic Church would have been something of a blow to their legitimacy and probably would have opened them up to either military action by outside powers or even revolution from within. Because what they would be more worried about than losing that confirmation by the Pope would be the Pope confirming someone else. Yeah, I was just going to say, that as seems the, like the, the real dangerous alternative here. Is yes. They, the, the Catholic Church backs someone else. Mm -hmm. And now says they've got all of our resources. Yeah. Now that, as I said, didn't end up being an actual uh, risk that they had to face, but or or an actual situation they had to face. But there there certainly was an aspect of them trying to avoid that ever coming around, and for good reason. So, I mean, not everything went smoothly with the uh, with taking Lombard and and kind of rolling it into the kingdom. There was one Lombard duke that refused to submit to Charlemagne, basically. He got steamrolled pretty hard. The majority of them just kind of played ball. I mean, there's there's a point at which you kind of see the, which way the wind is blowing, and it's easier for you to sort of adapt to the new system that's being put in place than it is to resist on what amounts to moral grounds and risk basically being annihilated. And 
you know, it's 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 really difficult to pass judgment on on people that live over twelve hundred years ago, but it seems like everything I've read makes it seem like for the majority of these Lombards, it was a fairly easy decision to align themselves with Charlemagne. So is this Charlemagne's like first big military campaign or has he already been established as like someone you do not want to mess around with? This is really his first major military action as king. I mean, he had been he had been helping his father before he had been king of and he had certainly established himself as a as a formidable uh, warrior. But but yeah, I mean, I mean in terms of of his conquests, in terms of his uh, expansion, uh, this is absolutely his first big move. Now, around this time, after he's kind of put down the whole Lombard nation, it's kind of about this time that he decides that he's going to promote a couple of his sons early because he's decided that things have gotten a little bit too big for him to handle on his own. And he decides to make two of his kings or two of his sons kings under him. So the way that works is that there's the Frankish kingdom. But within the Frankish kingdom, there are two, uh, there are two kingdoms. So there's the, the kingdom of Italy, so the Lombard kingdom, and the uh, the king kingdom of Aquitaine, which is sort of southwest France, so okay. the, the portion of France that kind of butts up against Spain. And where does that name come from? Uh, that's a great question. I don't know. I I would imagine it's it's left over from uh from the Roman uh, provincial system. Put but it in the show notes. I will absolutely add it to the show notes. I'm not sure. That's that's definitely a Latin name. Yeah, it sounds cool. But uh, yeah, I, I I don't know for sure. So we'll check that out. So that would be Louis the Pious was was king of Aquitaine, and then the the king of Italy was originally na- named Carolman after his brother. He renamed him Pepin after his father at the <laughs> at his coronation. Oh wow! So I mean, this was after his brother's death, but I don't think they left things on great terms. Yeah, it doesn't sound like it. And in general, uh, he really liked his kids. He was a very uh, involved father, especially for a king. He was really big on their education. He wanted them to be well educated. He wanted them to be given all the resources that uh, that he could provide for them. With Pepin and with Louis, he wanted to make sure that not only are they well-educated, but they're also educated in the culture of the kingdoms that he's giving them to rule over. So he wanted to make sure that they fit in culturally with the people that they were ruling over, which was a really shrewd way of doing things for someone that's interested in establishing like a Frankish identity overall. Right? So he was looking for a way to make sure that people are comfortable with the ruler by making them relatable, yeah. while still making sure that the rulers are Frankish and therefore kind of continuing that, that I don't want to call it ethnic identity because that's not quite right anymore. Um, and it hasn't been for a while, but at least cultural identity as Frankish. Makes sense though, right? Like it's just a good way to keep everybody feeling secure about their the leaders. Like, yeah, he's one of us. Yep. And what's more, it also gives his sons a chance to learn how to rule before he's gone. So that when he is gone, he, he, he knows that they have a sense of, of how to take care of this stuff and they have some experience. And this is a, this is a strategy that goes back to the, the Roman Empire, where for a lot of the, the history of the, the empire, there would be two emperors at all times and and anytime an emperor died there would be a and so there was a a junior and senior emperor basically 
so that people would get a chance to learn how to rule yeah. on a practical uh, level before they were forced to be the ultimate authority. Sort of like the idea of an heir apparent. Just like, this guy's going to take over when I leave. Exactly. Let's get him started. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Now, the other interesting thing there, too, that a lot of people really latch on to is that he made sure his daughters were very well educated as well, which seems like a fairly progressive idea at that point in time. Now, it should also be noted that he refused to let his daughters marry because he wasn't interested in setting up rival branches of the family. Yeah. He absolutely looked the other way while his daughters definitely had... Um, Relations? Consorts? <laughs> I suppose we could say. Sure. And in fact, uh, you know, rewarded some of their lovers. I don't know what <laughs> word to use there exactly. Uh, but, but you know, and, and, uh, and his illegitimate, his illegitimate uh, grandchildren uh, absolutely adored them and, and made sure that they were well set up, but also did not recognize them as legitimate heirs because he wanted to con- uh, control that, that line of succession, which is... Uh, I don't know. That's that's a hard one to judge. There's lots of things that you look back on and it's kind of like, yeah, that was an okay thing to do. Or like, yeah, that was a super messed up thing to do. This one is so culturally relativistic that I can't really pass any sort of judgment on it at all. Yeah, I guess the thing of it is, is that you have to, if you're going to do something like that, it's not a great thing to do. No. But if you're going to, this is probably the best way to go about doing it. So it's doing a slightly questionable thing in the fairest way possible. I think so. Yeah. I think that's fair. And I, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with judging historical figures. I think a lot of people shy away from it. I think it's an okay thing to do. Well, and there's the, no reason not to, in my opinion, right? We've got, like, the whole, part of history is judging how everything is in the context of today's culture. It's an aversion towards bias. Yeah. Which is a trend in history that I, I don't entirely like about history in general. Because I, I think what happens is it, when you're trying your hardest to eliminate bias inevitably bias is still going to creep in yeah and but but when you've tried your hardest to eliminate it all of a sudden you get defensive about any any bias that gets in there and you pretend like it's not there and that anything that you say is if it's well documented enough is factual i think it makes way more sense to just be aware of your bias yes and understand that it is a bias yes and then move forward I absolutely agree. That's completely my take on things. Be aware of your own bias, acknowledge your own bias, and use it as a, a place to begin the discussion rather than a thing to be hidden away. Because like it or not, history is interpretive. It's not um, absolute. Yeah, absolutely. And Which is a terrible place of words. <laughs> and the reason you get arguments about historical uh, opinions is because they're opinions. Yeah. But if you are aware of your own leanings before you get into these arguments i find it's a lot easier to and this this doesn't make sense but i find it's a lot easier to let go of your own opinions in that case because you're aware of the fact that you're bringing your own biases to the discussion it's a lot easier to accept somebody else's point of view when you understand that both of you are bringing a subjective analysis of a thing to the table that way a dialogue and a synthesis of different viewpoints is a lot easier to do because nobody's got a stake in it or rather they understand what the stakes are is maybe a fairer way of putting it anyways that's my rant about the problems with trying to objectify <laughs> history I, I don't know I, I think it's I'm on your side man I agree with you I get why people are trying to go that way yeah um, it's it's trying to legitimize the the discipline but I don't think it necessarily needs 
that specific type of legitimacy. I think that sort of legitimacy makes is what caused HI-101 to exist, is that this has a bit more charm and character to it, and it's got the biases of you and me on top of it, but at the same time... But we'll talk about it. We'll talk about we'll po- it. We'll point we're, out the fact that things are specifically our our opinions, or at, at the very least try and point out that the entire show is that. Yeah. And, and you can basically assume that all of this is our interpretation or and our it, construct of it. It allows it to be much more of an entertaining thing than just a... I think so. I like uh, to hope so, at least. <laughs> it is. I, I feel fairly confident in saying that it works. Yeah. That being said, as much as Charlemagne loved his kids... That doesn't mean he was a softy about it. His oldest son, Pippin the Hunchback. Ugh. Yep, these names. These, these Pippins and Peppins. Such... This one was a Pippin, not a Peppin. Joined a, a rebellion against his father. Oh, good. I'm guess sure what, this is going to end well. Guess what happened to him? I bet you can figure it out. Decapitated? No. Uh, put in a monastery. There it is. <laughs> After the, the Lombard campaigns... We get a couple more expansions, and I, you know what? I'm actually kind of going to glaze over a lot of this expansion stuff because a lot of it gets really repetitive and kind of boring, and military history is one of those things that if you're not looking at it through like a magnifying glass, there's really no point in getting into too many details, at least in my opinion. So I assume the short version is Charlemagne steamrolls a bunch of people and con- consolidates more land? Well, we'll do a little bit better, John. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he starts out... And I mean, the, the thing is, there's things going on on multiple, multiple fronts. So he'll leave one of his kids taking care of something somewhere while he goes to take care of something somewhere else. But the main two places that things end up happening here are the Pyrenees, so the, the mountain range between France and Spain, right? The Moors had basically been occupying portions of Spain since 711. Because Louis the Pious was the, the king of Aquitaine, he was charged with securing the Pyrenees Mountains as a border between them and the Moors, or the Saracens, if they, you know, they, they switched names all the times, uh, all the time when talking about these people, mostly because they just didn't understand them. Um, th- these were, these were um, uh, Muslim yeah. invaders into the uh, Iberian Peninsula, and they had as much trouble distinguishing um, Muslims as the Romans had trouble distinguishing them several centuries before. There's a what's the saying about history repeating itself? Yeah, well, there, anytime there's that level of cultural discontinuity, people tend towards um, simplification. Yeah, it's not always a malicious thing. It's usually a, a matter of uh, convenience. Yeah, it's an effective way to communicate at the time. Exactly. So Louis tried doing his thing at the border for a while and it was going okay but not that great and Charlemagne decided to jump in help out himself and they got across the Pyrenees Mountains they got into what is now Spain held Barcelona for a while but what ended up happening is you don't you're not just dealing with the various Muslim people that are living in that area at the time but you also have various what would become Spanish people at the at this point in time, the sort of the roots of those people that don't necessarily want Charlemagne there either. So he did not have a good time in Spain. He tried to take the Moorish capital of uh, Zaragoza, laid it to siege for a while, and it just didn't end up working out. And he ended up deciding to leave Spain because he felt like he had met his match, basically. Needed to regroup if he was ever going to get back there at all. And as he was leaving, there was a, a battle. It's called the Battle of Roncevaux Pass. And 
it's, it's really interesting because any writings that you see on it from Islamic sources consider it, like if they mention it at all, it's maybe considered a skirmish at best. I have a feeling that the uh, representation on the other side is going to be a little bit more dramatic. Well, yeah, because there were a number of fairly important people that were lost. Basically, there was a, a baggage train. Charlemagne would have been at the front, and then there'd be a rear guard, right, protecting the rear. And basically, the rear guard was lost in this battle, and there were a number of fairly important people in this rear guard, one of which was the prefect of Brittany, a guy named Roland. And the story of this battle ended up being called the Song of Roland. It was like an 11th century epic poem in, in Old French. And this story got retold so many times and blown out of proportion in so many different ways that it's actually really famous in, in medieval literature as, as this epic battle between you know the forces of Islam on one side and Charlemagne, defender of the faith, on the other. And it's, it's, but it's, it's really uh, present in the medieval um, mindset when they're thinking about Charlemagne. They're thinking about him staving off these, these, uh, these invading forces. It's, it's amazing, actually, how prevalent the conflict between the islamic world and the christian world are like throughout world history like it's it's a very very old narrative and it has not changed a lot in many centuries but the the interesting thing about this is that the battle wasn't actually fought by any moors or saracens it was actually some basque forces that had attacked the the rear train and the basques were christian oh good Basques, the, the Basques are still there in Spain. In fact, they're a, like a separatist uh, movement within Spain right now, uh, have been for a long time. The, the history of the Basque people is, is interesting. It's not long enough to get into on something like this. But yeah, an interesting people. But yeah, they had, <laughs> the Basques had, uh, had attacked the rear guard and, and it turns into this, you know, centuries later into this epic poem about millions of soldiers clashing in the name of, of various faiths. And it's not the truth at all. You're not even close. But in the story of Spain between, you know, 700 and, and, and the, the 15th century, basically, you know, the Moors weren't pushed out of Spain until 1492. Wow. So they really stuck it out. This was called the Reconquista, the, the uh, Reconquest. And, you know, Charlemagne did a little bit to contribute to that. Not much. He managed to basically secure rules slightly south of the Pyrenees. So he managed to secure the mountains themselves to use defense. And this was done uh, through a combination of diplomacy, um, sort of what you could call cultural warfare almost, so converting people to Christianity, to, to the Frankish culture, things like that, and like very carefully calculated attacks here and there, but very rarely and very, very careful. And so over 30 years, he managed to get just south of the mountains. And it took another, you know, until 1492 to completely drive the Moors out of Spain. So they've got a very long Muslim heritage in Spain, which a lot of people don't think of, especially because Spain is considered like a really Catholic country for the most part. But it's it's absolutely a part of their heritage. The other main theater that uh, that Charlemagne spent a lot of time in was the East in the, uh, fighting the Saxons mainly. Um, the Saxons war, the Saxon wars could. I could just go on and on about them. They took, you know, he spent 30 years fighting these people in over 18 major battles, but like constant skirmishes with these people. And, you know, there are other Germanic peoples. And this is sort of in the um, like Northern Germany kind of thing. 
And basically he would conquer them and then there would be, you know, you'd think he had things locked down. There'd be a huge uprising. You'd have to go back and put them down again. And basically what that ended up with is that in the year 804, he demanded that all Saxons convert to Catholicism and that they become one people with the Franks, which meant putting in Frankish uh, political structure, Frankish religion, Frankish culture, any language uh, changes that needed to be made. But he basically had to completely assimilate them before they, you know, kind of knuckled under. Yeah. Bavaria, which is South Germany, yep. had been a Lombardian protectorate. So when he took Lombard from uh, Desiderius, in 774, it became tra- Frankish territories technically, but in 794, he decided that the Bavarian king, a guy named Tassilo, was unfit to rule. And so he divided up the, the territory into Frankish counties and basically just assimilated it almost painlessly. I mean, other than that, the guy I'm sure went to a monastery. I don't have that <laughs> written down specifically, but... I'm sure he did. That's that's my best guess. I feel like it would be really funny if, like, put into a monastery was like a euphemism of some sort for like brutally murdered yeah no exactly there were a people called the avars who were slavic they were kind of an asian origin they were horse people they were yeah, horse people i kind of remember the name actually basically he spent a bunch of time it, well basically the decade of the 790s fighting them until uh, they became a vassal state. And he decided, you know what, I actually kind of like this vassal state thing between me and the Byzantine Empire and the um, Bulgarian Empire, which are both huge players at this point in time. And he ended up constructing basically a belt between what's now the eastern border of Germany, more or less. I mean, it was it was still in what would now be German territory, but this belt of Czechs, Serbs, Croats, Avars, that would all serve as kind of a buffer between any actual Frankish states and all of those, you know, kind of Slavic horse tribes in the north and the, the Bulgarians in the middle and the, the Byzantine Empire in the south. And they would all, while not technically being Frankish, would, would serve as a defense between him and these empires that he was a little bit worried about. And that's kind of where his expansion more or less stopped. I mean, things would continue from there, but that was the vast bulk of them. Things from here on out take a little bit of a weird turn, and probably the things that we most associate with Charlemagne, including actually being made emperor, which is kind of the main talking point here. I was just going to say, this is where we were, this is what we've been leading up to, folks. But I just took a quick look at, uh, at our time, and since that is such a major event, I think this is probably a really good place to stop, and we'll leave it for next time. Cool, sounds good. Charlemagne wasn't one of those figures in history that came up out of nowhere. His reign was built on a rich tradition of rulers who filled the void left in Western Europe after the fall of Western Roman Empire. That being said, as we've established in this episode, this strong start effectively positioned him for a lasting and influential legacy. Next time on HI101, we'll talk about the title of Emperor, why it was given to Charlemagne, and what it would mean for the next thousand years of European history. That episode will be up on July 15th. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, 
and this has been HI101.